Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. Today we are continuing our story in the book of Acts, the story of the church, and um, we have made it to Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's last words to some Ephesian elders. And in the course of the book of Acts, we've seen Paul speak publicly a lot. Um, he speaks to Jewish audiences sometimes, to Gentile God-fearing audiences, that is Gentiles who are interested in the things of the Lord, and also to Gentile skeptics. We saw in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was speaking in Athens. But this is actually the first recorded speech of Paul to a group of church leaders. This is a Christian speech. We could even call this the first Christian leadership conference that's recorded. And uh, so, therefore, it's a speech that is really useful for edifying established churches, even an established church like Redeemer. Let's turn our attention now to Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not strain from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ." And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the race, my course, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your infallible, your inerrant word, your word that is profitable to teach us and instruct us in how we might be 
disciples. Lord, I pray that you would speak powerfully through it today by your Holy Spirit. Open up our hearts. Help us to receive both the beautiful, glorious, and wonderful things and also the hard things, for they are all given for us for our sanctification. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this week, I re-watched that film, The Big Short. It's about the 2008 economic downturn where the housing bubble collapsed or popped. I don't know if anyone's seen that before. It's a really fascinating movie to me because basically there were these doomsday prophets, so to speak, who predicted that these mortgage-backed securities were junk. They were no good. And so what they did was they bet against these mortgage-backed securities, knowing that if the housing bubble burst, if the markets failed, they would make a ton of money. So it's a really interesting feeling watching this movie because it's kind of an underdog story. You're rooting for the guys who are like telling everybody that there is a big problem in the economy, but at the same time, you don't really want them to be right because you know what happens if the economy absolutely tanks. In fact, there is this time uh, in the movie where a wily old investor is talking to two young guys. These two young investors had just secured 200 to 1 odds betting against AA-rated mortgage-backed securities. And they're dancing. They're like excited because they know they're about to make a boatload of money. And this old investor turns to them and he says this, stop dancing. Stop dancing. We just bet against the American economy, which means, which means if we are right, people lose homes, people lose jobs, people lose retirement savings, people lose pensions. Just don't dance. Sobering words. Our passage today opens in Miletus. It's a town on the southwest coast of present-day Turkey. It's about 30 miles as the crow flies from Ephesus. Paul, knowing that he wouldn't see the Ephesian elders ever again, calls them to himself. They make the long journey through winding roads, and they get to this first recorded Christian leadership conference. It was a beautiful and iconic place for this conference. It was actually the home of one of the very first philosophers named Thales. Thales was was active in the 7th century and 6th century BC, and you might remember him for his axiom, know thyself. Know thyself, the very first Disney prophet. Thank you for that laugh. But now, a greater sage, a greater theologian, a greater philosopher is ready to speak his words of wisdom to those gathered here. His speech is peppered with themes that we would prefer not to hear about. Difficult things, doomsday things even, you might say. Verse 19, humility and tears and trials await Paul. Verse 23, he speaks of imprisonments and afflictions that await him. He then moves on to what the elders are going to face. Fierce wolves are going to come to destroy the flock. And then the worst, even from among yourselves, this little group, verse 31 says, or 30 says, twisted things you will speak to draw away disciples of the Lord. It's kind of a hard doomsday speech. 
How do you think it would go over if Paul held a discipleship conference in the modern American church? He's not really one of those motivational speakers that you sign up to go and hear, right? But we probably could use a speaker like Paul. The American church probably needs these words. Attendance is down. 30 to 50 million, we think, somewhere around those numbers post-COVID, people have just dropped out of church with far more churches closing their doors than churches opening and being planted. Where looks like to us that we might be on a small but steady decline. But when we hear these words, we can't just think about those churches out there that needs to hear them. God is at work at Redeemer, but we need to hear these words as well. It's oftentimes in accepting and receiving the hard things from the Lord that we actually open ourselves up to hear about His grace that will build us up. We can't get into easy street mode and pretend that hard things won't happen here as well. So, do we have the humility as a church body to listen to Paul's church assessment? Because when we hear those words, then we will also hear these looking at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We want to hear those words that build us up too, don't we? The Ephesian elders respond really well. Look at verses 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Even though Paul had some hard things to say to these Ephesian elders, they were in. They were in. They wanted to hear them. They wanted to hear the problems and the pitfalls that could come because they wanted to be good disciples, following Jesus well through the hard things. So let's now ask, do we want to hear these hard things as a church as well so that we could also hear these gracious words? How is God going to build up our church? What makes a healthy church, according to Paul? There are three things that we can pull out of this passage. There is godly imitation and discipleship in a church being strengthened by grace. Godly imitation and discipleship. Second, there's both an outward focus and an inward focus. There's outreach and care happening in healthy churches. And third, the church has to stay centered around the powerful Word of God. So those three things, imitation, discipleship, in-reach and outreach, all centered around the Word of God. So let's look at first. There is godly imitation and discipleship. Paul twice uses the emphatic, you yourselves know, in verses 18 and 34, and both function as appeals to the Ephesian elders to look at his character of life. You yourselves know what kind of person I was among you. My life is an open book. I 
lived with you. I went from house to house teaching you. I didn't shrink from proclaiming to you the whole Word of God. I didn't even ask you for money. I worked with these old hands, not just to provide for my own needs, but also to provide for the needs of other people. Why does Paul remind him of the quality and character of his life? Does he do it because he wants them to praise him? No. Paul is putting before them as an example of what it looks like to shepherd people well. He recognizes what we all know implicitly. We learn by example. We learn by imitation. Have you ever taken a kid to a playground? What is the first thing they do? You take your kid to the playground, and then they go, and their eyes immediately light light upon an older kid. And that's the kid that they learn how to climb up the slide from, right? Like, I didn't teach my children the phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire. They learn that on the playground, you know? Kids watch people older than them, and they follow. That's what they do. And actually, we all kind of learn best by example. This is how God designed this world to work. We just need godly examples. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul wants them to pay attention to his life because then in verse 28, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and then all the flock. Here's the pattern. Watch me follow Christ See that growth in yourself and watch and show others how to follow Christ. I could sum up the particular quality of discipleship, or Paul does in verse 24. He says this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I might finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, I read that right. Did we hear it? Here's what it said. My life is not of any value in and for and by myself. My life is of value in and for and by our God. The quality and the character of my life is valuable insofar as I live for God's kingdom. If I live for myself and my kingdom, my life is bankrupt. Do we believe that? Paul is exhorting the elders, lay down your lives for the sheep. Live a life of ministry and sacrifice for others, just like Paul did. For three years, night and day, verse 18, among you the whole time and ever since I set foot in Asia. This is what discipleship looks like. We shouldn't follow someone from HQ who says, lay down your lives. We follow someone who's already done it. Not do as I say, do as I do. And that really is the core of the Christian life, isn't it? What did Jesus do? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Or again, if I then, your teacher and master, have washed your feet, you are to wash one another's feet. But here's the multi-million dollar question for this church here. Is Paul's life of service and sacrifice compelling to us? 
is Jesus' life of service and sacrifice compelling to us? Is the path of discipleship compelling? Do you want a kingdom-first life, or would you prefer a life on easy street? I think so many of us prefer the life on easy street than the narrow and difficult and hard road of discipleship. Why? Well, part of it is our context. Like, we are so close to bringing heaven on earth. We really feel that. Like, we we recognize or think that sin and brokenness are so thin that just a couple of technical tweaks and I can get there. A little bit more money, a new house, a new spouse, the right medication, the right advice from the right person, finally cutting off my toxic parents. We think that those little tweaks will usher in the kingdom of God in my life, and it ain't true. It's just not true, man. It's a lie. The good life is always a struggle. It just is. The good life is always a struggle. And trying to find your best life now, you might be sacrificing your best life forever. The only way to real life is along the narrow path of discipleship. A great way of figuring out kind of where you are in that is looking three places. Look above you, look around you, and look below you. Look above you. Who do I value? Who am I looking up to? Is it that dear Christian saint who has fought the good fight, or is it that person that's merely successful? Look around you. Who are your closest friends? Are they the ones that spur you on to love and good works? Or are they press you into the image of this world? Look below you. Who are people who follow me? My children or the people that I work with, what are they becoming because of me? Are they becoming godly in character? or something else. When the sheep of a healthy church grow into maturity, they don't just become fatter sheep. They actually slowly but surely become more and more shepherds. Now, we're never not be sheep. We're always sheep. We'll always be children. But we're also called to grow up, and we're also called to learn how to shepherd the flock. So, I want each one of us to ask ourselves, am I becoming a shepherd? Would God want me to teach people how to grow? If you aren't sure about that, all is not lost. Find someone in this congregation, sure, somewhere else, who truly is an example to the flock and say, hey, I want to learn from you. Don't wait for Redeemer to come up with the perfect discipleship program for you before you go and just say, hey, I need some help in this. I would love to learn how to be a disciple. So, a healthy church builds disciples by imitation. That's how it works. Second, second, the particular shape of that discipleship that it must take is both service and care in the church and outreach 
to the world. Service and care in the church, outreach to the world. Notice how hard it is to tell if Paul is talking about inreach or outreach. Look at verse 20. He taught house to house and to Jews and Greeks through repentance. In verse 25, he's talking about going and proclaiming the kingdom. And then in verse 27, he tells you, that is the elders, the whole counsel of God. And you see what he's doing in his ministry is always going back and forth between telling others and building up the church and caring for others and caring for the church. A disciple who loves Jesus is learning how to do both. As a church, then, we can't choose between inward care and outward mission. Growing churches also do both. I was listening to a podcast the other day where one of the leaders of our denomination was was uh, interviewing a church assessor, okay? So this guy basically goes into churches and is like helps them to figure out what's going on, what needs improvement. And the church assessor was talking and he said, look, churches really have three stages, three stages, incline, recline, and decline. Now decline, you probably know, we don't want to be a church in decline. Incline, he says, is characterized by this, quote, keeping the inward pull between fellowship and the outward push to evangelism matched. Recline is the hard one, though. Over time, as a church grows, we get excited and happy. And look at our budget. That's pretty good. Man, we got some really cool ministries. We've hired some staff to do some great ministry around here, you know? And it becomes easier and easier to say, we've made it. We've made it. Kind of like the disciple who wants to sit on easy street. Churches can get that way too. But this is what happens when churches say, we've made it. Guess what? They go from recline to decline. This is what he says, again, quoting, sowing the seeds of their own destruction because they've stopped paying attention to the things of the Lord. Now, look, I believe God is doing amazing things here. It's been a wonderful 20-year, 20-year-and-a-half journey at Redeemer, just as God was doing amazing things in the Ephesian church. If we just go back one chapter, people all over the spectrum, Jews and Greeks, are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. There was a strong worship of Artemis and magic arts going on in Ephesus, and people are bringing their magical books and throwing them on the fire and just basically getting rid of just burning money because they were the things that were not of the Lord, and they're coming to faith, and it's beautiful. It's really exciting. But even in wonderful churches, vigilance is important. The Ephesian church actually comes up one more time or again in the Bible towards the end of the Bible's composition in Revelation 2, about 20 to 30 years after this happened. God gives us an update on the Ephesian church, and it sounds a whole lot like they're in recline mode. This is what it says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake, and you have not grown weary. Good. You still believe. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The Ephesians still had faith, but they were lacking in what? Love. 
and good works. At Redeemer, we've recently implemented something called our shepherding groups, where our deacons and elders and deaconesses and their spouses are over a group of members at Redeemer. And the basic idea here is that every single member of Redeemer has some shepherding care so that they might call you and reach out to you and say, hey, three things, three things I want to know. One, are you finding a place of belonging here? That's so important, a place of fellowship, a place of care. The second thing they might ask you is, are you serving here? Do you have a place where you can serve at Redeemer? How can I help you do that? The third thing that they'll probably ask you, and this is the best one, is how can I pray for you and love you and serve you? Please don't get scared when someone cold calls you from Redeemer. Like, you can answer that call. And I want you to be thinking about that. Where's my place of belonging? Where's my place of service? How can I be known by my brothers and sisters in the faith and cared for and prayed for? Let me give you two ways you can think about this. Two ways. Two very practical things. First, do commit to serving at Redeemer. About 50% of our adult membership serves Redeemer in some capacity. 50%. That's okay. That's not bad. But come on. Can we do better? Yeah. Can we get that to 75%, 85%? I mean, we should kind of be at 100%. Yeah, we can do better. You know who'd be really blessed by this? Georgiana in the nursery. Man, if we could get 20 or 30 more of you to sign up and say, yeah, okay, I'll look after kids in the nursery, that would not just ease the burden on Georgiana, but all of those other people who are serving two, three, four times a semester in the nursery. I'm serious. Guys, we can do better. Serve the church. That's what Jesus calls us to. We don't want to get in recline mode here. We don't. Second, please commit to praying for a non-Christian in your life. The leadership team at Redeemer has said, we're going to pray for 50 people to come to know Jesus, 50 adults to come to know Jesus. And we would love it if you would join us. Just pray for one friend who doesn't know him. That's like 600 people getting prayed for in our community. If you pray for two or three friends, I can't even do that kind of math. Now, I look, I know that so many of us actually came to Redeemer and we started to feel the freedom of the gospel. We started to feel the freedom of the gospel, the blessing that it is that I can come to a church and just know that I am fully and freely loved in Christ Jesus and I don't have to perform. And that is beautiful and wonderful and I'm glad that you are experiencing rest. Now, let me tell you what the next stage of that rest looks like. What does Jesus say? Take my yoke, my yoke of discipleship upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest is never opposed to discipleship. It actually always goes hand in hand with it. So, to be built up as a church… We have to grow in our discipleship by imitation to learn how to serve both inside the church and care for the people around us. And finally, to be built up as a church, we have to stay centered around the powerful Word of God. Notice how these themes, they build on each other, right? 
They are building on each other. Paul's hinge and central point in this passage is verses 27 through 28. Now, we can tell that this is the central point of the passage because there's this beautiful flow in the passage that he says something that corresponds to the last thing. This is called a chiastic structure. It's okay if you don't remember that. But there's this gorgeous flow that shows us and points to a central theme. So, in verse 17, the elders arrive. In the last verses, Paul departs. In 18 through 25, Paul talks about his character. And then in 32 through 35, he talks about his character. In 26, he says, I defended the church. And then in 29 through 31, how the elders must defend the church. Those things correspond to each other and leaves us with one central core thing. 27, 28, I'll read it again. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood." Now, here's the beauty. The real creator and guardian and sustainer of the church has always been and will always be God Himself. Did you notice it? The church was created by the Word of God. The guardianship is by the Spirit of God. The church was redeemed by the blood of God. So this Trinitarian character of God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will always guard and protect the church. Against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Only God can build healthy churches. Praise God for that. But we also have a part to play. We do have a part to play. We can respond to that. We can get in step with the Spirit in that. Richard Baxter, theologian and pastor, printed at the beginning of your bulletin, says it beautifully, every time we look upon our congregations, let us believingly remember that they are the purchase of Christ's blood and therefore should be guarded by us with the deepest interest and most tender affection. That's something given to the leaders of the church, but it's actually something every single one of us can see in each other. And that one place that we believe that and learn that and grow in that is where the whole counsel of God, verse 27. Do you want to love one another, serve one another, grow in discipleship with God? Then let's treasure the Word of God. Treasure it preached on a Sunday morning, shared in your community groups, read at those early morning hours when you just wake up and spend time with the Lord Jesus in His Word, when you speak about it to your kids on the, in the car ride or over dinner. Treasure God's Word. That's how the church is sustained and equipped how we are protected against those fierce wolves that would come and drive us apart, and even from those twisted things that are spoken by members of our own body. So I can't give blood. Matt Beham can't give blood. I actually lived in the UK at a time when mad cow disease was on the rise. So the FDA has barred me from ever giving blood. And I cannot say that there's not a small part of me that selfishly is like, yes. Like, I don't want to sit in that chair and have that blood come out of me. You know, that sounds hard. Now, I really believe you should if you can. <laughs> 
I really do believe that. I think it's our civic duty. I just don't have to do it. (laughs) But here's why I share that with you. There is no small part of God that doesn't believe and love to give his blood for you. That's what he's saying. The church is purchased by the blood of God who willingly and lovingly gives it to you so that you might be purchased, restored, bought, forgiven, secured for all eternity. And because of that, the church must be compelled, compelled to discipleship, to growing in grace with one another, to serve, serving the church, loving the world, and guarding and cherishing cherishing the one place that we know for sure God promises to show us His love, the Word of God. Let's do that together as a church. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great redeeming love for us, purchased by Jesus, secured by the Spirit. Lord God, help us to be a church on mission, to grow in our discipleship, to serve one another, to love this world with a love that you loved it by sending your Son as a sacrifice for it. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.